Welcome back, everyone. If you have the possibility and are willing to put on your video, I like it's nice for me to be able to see you as I'm uh, speaking. Thank you. So I want this uh, morning, at least the morning in the Pacific time zone, uh, to continue a line of inquiry and practice that I started in November. And this was on the day right after the U.S. election, and then a week later, I focused on the theme of practicing with what we might call views. Uh, in the Buddhist languages, in Pali, for example, the, the word is ditti, D-I-T-T-H-I, and it plays a very prominent role. Uh, and I'll, I'll say more about that. But this is really the, the larger area of how do we practice with our views, our beliefs, our philosophies, uh, even we might say our core principles, uh, our opinions. Uh, how do we work with them? They seem so central to our lives, and yet there are also ways that we can often be uh, confused, entangled, of course, historically, um, people and nations, groups have fought uh, wars and millions of people have died related to certain views uh, of different kinds. So views can be sometimes both skillful and unskillful and even hugely destructive. Very basic for our relationships, obviously. How do we communicate with those with whom we have different views or perspectives? And if we think of the word view also as a metaphor, meaning how I see things, how we see things, then it's as if uh, each of us has a different view. You know, what's the view from... Donald, or what's the view from you? And so being skillful and practical with views is central to relationships. And part of the reason that I was interested in the theme in November was because uh, in the U.S., certainly, and I, I think it's that way, maybe not to as great an extent in other countries, there seems to be there seem to be very widespread uh, differences in views, even you know what we could call polarization. How might we work collectively in a skillful way to uh, mitigate those kind of splits about views? How do we communicate to people, maybe in our extended family or some friends, who have very different views? You know, when I. We, we've explored how, for many of us, we may live in what we sometimes call bubbles, where we're mostly with people who share our views, which, of course, can be both helpful. Probably most people in uh, right now in our conversation 
have the view that meditation can be helpful. Anyone not have that view? I don't see any hands. So, um, and yet being in a bubble can also be problematic. And so we see that. Uh, uh, I mentioned the last time I spoke uh, a line that influenced me from uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He spoke about how too often, I think he was mostly speaking about uh, the South, but he might he probably could generalize. He said too often we live in monologue rather than dialogue. We live in monologue rather than dialogue. And um, you know, and how do we how do our views relate to what we might call facts or the truth? Uh, you know, it was interesting for me. I saw just a few days ago that there was an article in the New York Times which was uh, looking a little more deeply into the polls. Some of you know that there are polls which show that roughly 70 to 80 percent of people who call themselves Republicans believe that the election was not fair, at least according to the polls. And even though there's uh, you know virtually no evidence to that effect. And the article was based on actually talking with uh, people who study polls. And what they found out was basically that uh, when they look to certain polls, it's very evident that most Republicans uh, do know what happened. But when they answer polls asking about it, they don't necessarily relate to a sense of what they think was most most in accordance with so-called facts. Rather, they answer uh, because they give a view that they like, right? When they answer polls, they may say that uh, they answer uh, about what they wish were true or what they think they should say, or some of them like to, so to speak, this was a quote in the poll, they want to stick it to the establishment and they think that the pollsters are the establishment. So they're actually, the, so when they actually uh, say that they didn't think the election was fair, it's not necessarily that they uh, think they're making a factual statement. They may be doing other sorts of things. That was interesting. In other words, views have all sorts of roles. And uh, I was thinking there was an old Bob Dylan song where he says, you better get your facts when someone challenges your imagination. Okay, I'm not going to try to unpack that, but I'll, I'll just leave it there. You know, maybe we can come back to that. So um, last time when I was here, and some of you were there, I did two things primarily. I gave some sense of how the teachings of the Buddha were uh, in terms of views. And then I gave um, three core practices to help us investigate and work with, practice with uh, what we can call views. Again, I'm using views more broadly to mean beliefs, philosophies, uh, perspectives, narratives, perhaps even on some things, opinions. So, um, again, it's, it's, it's a, I'm not trying to be overly precise with the term, at least right, 
right now. So what I want to do is to briefly review those two areas that I looked at last time and have those be for us a kind of foundation for our practicing with views. And then I want to take it a little further and uh, deepen in several different ways our looking into views. And I think I'm going to continue next week as well. So when we look to the teachings of the Buddha on views, we find a pretty straightforward approach. What he wants to do is to say that there are both uh, unskillful and skillful views, and that views are skillful when they help us practically to come to awakening. That being said, there are a number of views, and he particularly focuses on what we might call metaphysical views, which are not so helpful to pursue and cannot ultimately be answered. So I'll say a little bit more about those, are, I think, are the two main important points. So views are useful or not useful. They're entirely valuable for pragmatic reasons. That's what he's going to be be saying. And what we'll find actually in, uh, in some parts of the Buddhist teaching and in later Buddhist traditions, there is a sense that if you actually have a strong fixed view on anything and you look at it carefully enough, it will fall apart. In other words, there's ultimately no fixed view that is actually valid about anything that has ultimate validity. That being said, there can be a number of views which are not, in a sense, absolute, but they're very helpful, such as ethical views, ethical principles, right? So that's interesting. That's some of where I'm going to deepen it to really go into some of that uh, later perspective. And you find it some in the teachings of the Buddha, which essentially says that there's a gap between language and reality. And we have to bear that in mind when we're looking at views. And if we bear that in mind enough, we'll know that our views are at best helpful from a practical perspective. Okay, so that's going to be the area that I deepen into, that, um, that, that perspective. But the, the initial points are pretty straightforward. So views can be used skillfully for the purposes of awakening. We get caught in views because we get attached to them or fixated on them. There's some kind of uh, reactivity related to views and that there are no ultimate answers to the, the main metaphysical questions. And in that, he was particularly looking at the questions of his time. You know, that in the, uh, in the India of the Buddha's time, there were a set of standard metaphysical questions. Is the cosmos eternal or is it not eternal? Is the cosmos finite or is it infinite? 
Are the mind or the soul the same as the body, or are they different? And then, what happens to a fully awakened being at the time of death? Does the fully awakened being exist after death, not exist after death, both exist and, and not exist, or neither exist nor not exist? Those last four categories, that was what the, was sort of the standard logic of the India at the time. There are four logical possibilities. You can either say, this is, or this isn't, or this both is and isn't, or this neither is nor isn't. Okay, I'm, I'm not going to go too much into that, but I just wanted to let you know. Okay, so it's, it's interesting. And so... The teaching, some of the teachings we looked at last time, well, one of them was called the teaching of the poisoned arrow. And the Buddha told the story of a person who was shot by a poisoned arrow. And he said, this person has been shot by the poisoned arrow. And the person's friends and kinsfolk and family gathered around the person and brought uh, a surgeon and someone who would help from others who would help medically. But the person wanted to ask, who shot the arrow? What kind of arrow was it? Was the person old? Was the person young? Where did the person come from? What kind of bird feather was on the arrow? And the Buddha goes on like this. I'm taking this to be a form of uh, humor in the context of India at the time, right? He goes on and on asking like 20 questions. And the uh, punchline of the teaching is, um, after asking all these questions, the person would die and would still have no answers to the questions. So you get the point, right? That, and this was particularly in reference to these metaphysical views. Um, but, you know, we could also see this. It's both a critique of looking for those metaphysical views that I mentioned, but it's also about the fact that uh, the essence of how to use views is from a practical point of view. So what he's saying is that answering those views has nothing to do with the practical uh, task at hand. And there's another dialogue with a wandering yogi named Vachagata in which the Buddha doesn't answer uh, the questions about these ultimate views. And so it says, I don't take a stand on these views. He goes on to say, there, uh, these views constitute a thicket. There, there's a wilderness of views, a contortion of views, a writhing of views, a fetter of views. Having, you know, basically attachment to these views is connected with suffering, distress, despair, and fever. It does not lead to awakening. So you get, you get the point here. And this is, again, particularly with the metaphysical views. Another uh, famous passage where the Buddha says, my teachings are like a raft that help you get over the ocean to the further shore. 
when you get to the further shore, would you go around with a raft on your shoulders? Or would you rather let go of the raft? In other words, the teachings are a means to an end. And they're not to be sort of uh, attached to oneself. And then in a related way, and this is the last one I'll, I'll mention, the, there's a famous dialogue that the Buddha had with a group of people called the Kalamas who were uh, living at a crossroads. I think of it as a little bit like living in the San Francisco Bay Area. And, and they had all sorts of spiritual teachers come through. This teacher and that teacher, just like we have, you know, in probably many parts of the world now. And with Zoom, it's kind of unlimited. Any given day or weekend, you could you have your choice of like 50 different, you know, spiritual smorgasbords, you know, or you can you can you know you could you could have chosen to be here. You could go on YouTube and listen to any number of discourses on this or that, and this uh, group of people called the Lakamas had something like that situation. They had one teacher come through, another teacher come through, and they were very, very confused because all the teachers had different views. And they said, what view should we follow? Should we follow this teacher's view or that teacher's view? And this is where the Buddha gave this uh, very radical, again, pragmatically based response. He said, it is proper for you to have some uncertainty about all these views. And then he gave his guidance. Do not go upon what has been acquired by repeated hearing, nor upon tradition, nor upon rumor. So he's saying, don't believe something because of tradition. Very interesting for someone who was about to start a tradition. I mean, he didn't start the tradition. Other people started it. But interesting, isn't it, right? He's saying, don't go on something just because of tradition, nor upon what is in a scripture. Of course, he didn't have scriptures at that time. Don't go on what's in a scripture. Don't go on tradition. Don't go on an axiom. Don't go on spacious reasoning. Don't go uh, upon um, the consideration, this is our teacher. So he's saying, don't even believe it because your teacher is saying it. right? But rather, he said, um, when you yourselves know these things are bad, these things are blamable. These things lead to harm, abandon them. When you know these things conduce to awakening, follow them. So entirely pragmatic criteria and to uh, have it be based ultimately in one's own experience. So this is the, this is the teaching here. Um, and You know, and then he, he often also talked about how we get caught in uh, views for thinking. Some of you know there's a very interesting, I didn't mention this last time, there's a very interesting teaching about what's called papancha. How many of you have, you, how many of you have heard the word papancha? Yeah, it's a very interesting teaching. Papancha, it's spelled P-A-P-A-N-C-A, -A -A, and sometimes translated as conceptual proliferation. This would be something like what we experienced in meditation, maybe some of us, where we're just doing in, out, in, out. 
what should I have for lunch? Ah, I don't have so much food in my refrigerator. Oh, where should I go shopping? Oh, I have three choices. Oh, but I think for I really want to get that thing for lunch that I had two weeks ago. Maybe I'll go there. Okay, when should I go? You get the idea? Very familiar, right? Conceptual proliferation. This is what the Buddha said about it. What one perceives, one thinks about. What one thinks about, one complicates with associations, memories, ideas. And then these notions assail and overwhelm a person. And, of course, there's nothing wrong with uh, planning about uh, how you're going to provide lunch, right? But the conceptual proliferation can also take us way beyond what we know into views. Um, Tibetan teacher Sokni Rinpoche says, we believe our first thought, then our second, then soon our fifth. By the tenth, we're sure that the fifth thought is a reality. And uh, another uh, teacher from India, some of you know, a, a sage named Nisargadatta, who was who died in the late 20th century. He said, we miss the real by lack of attention and create the unreal by excess of imagination. Interesting. We miss the real by lack of attention and create the unreal by excess of imagination. And we might say that we are in this papancha or conceptual pro proliferation more than we might like to admit. That's, some, that's one of the things we find when we meditate. Anyone relate to that? There's a lot of, it's, our minds are active, right? They're, they're active. And so, again, maybe to summarize, what's problematic about, let's say, unskillful views? What's problematic about them? There's typically a tendency in the views to grasp onto something or to fixate or to push something away. We push away other views. We grasp onto uh, certain views. We maybe give a certain uh, view more strength than it deserves because I want to have this view or I want to be sure about this. So part of what we'll, of course, look at when we're mindful of views is the extent to which there's some kind of grasping onto the view or pushing away. You know, maybe I want uh, meaning. Now, what's tricky about views is that many views that we have are either unconscious or semi-conscious. This makes things quite tricky, right? And so, and, and actually makes it more complex. Some of the views we have, and I'm thinking about this particularly from a psychological perspective, some of us may sometimes find, this is something I found, I should back up, something I found particularly looking at the theme of the judgmental mind. A lot of us have, for example, self-judgments that in their root were formed when we were young, when we, often when we were very young, three, four, five, and they often are, take the form of what we can call limiting beliefs and are either relatively unconscious if we haven't done inner work or semi-conscious. So I may be actually looking at the world 
in a certain way and not even know that I'm doing that. It's another complication about views. So an example, you know, I may, um, I think this is true in my own experience, that I, I think, was conditioned to have the view that anger is bad. Probably very common, you know, and probably passed on uh, intergenerationally. And very, very common in our uh, society. And so I had that view that anger is bad. I internalized it at a young age. I get the message, presumably from my family, maybe some from the society. And then I have that view, but actually I don't know that I have it. But I find myself, when I get angry, judging myself harshly. Or when I see other people angry, maybe as an eight-year-old, I say, bad boy, you're angry, right? Do I know that I have the view that anger is bad? Not really. Maybe I get to know it more clearly when I'm a little bit older, right? Or, you know, someone tells me at age 25, Donald, do you have a thing with anger? Right? Right? And, and so, you know, we can think of many other examples. I see it all the time when I work with people around the theme of the judgmental mind. We may have a relatively unconscious view, I'm not okay, or I'm not safe, or I can't trust people. And so one of the complications about views is that a lot of them are, are relatively unconscious, you know, and some of this comes out also when we look to the area of what's called implicit bias, looking at themes maybe related to race or gender, you know, that people have views that they're hardly aware of. People say, no, I'm in relation to issues of... Um, you know, seeing people from different ethnic groups. Maybe uh, I say to myself, no, I'm, I'm a fair-minded person. And then one takes certain tests and you see, oh, I uh, tend, you know, this, this was found, for example, when they gave tests to uh, police officers, they found often that police officers would more likely interpret a camera uh, with, with an African-American as a gun than they would a camera with people of European background, right? And so a lot of this is very, very unconscious. And I'll come back to those, those dimensions. Uh, let me see, maybe, maybe just in a moment. Yeah, maybe I can, maybe I can do that. But we, we have these views. And also, I think very important is that a lot of our views, we have views that come from our family background, views that come from our education and study. We also have a lot of views that come from society. And one of the things that's important to see is that there's a great deal of what we might call um, manipulation and control of views and ideas, even in a democratic society. We see this more clearly in totalitarian societies, right? We talk about propaganda or we talk about censorship. But of course, this is also the case to a significant extent, even in a democratic society, you know, that there's a certain amount of what we might even call uh, propaganda. Certain views are possible, certain views are not possible. We see this especially <clears throat> when there is... Um, you know, in the context of uh, foreign policy and war. I saw it very, very clearly with the invasion of Iraq, you know, that certain views 
were prominent before the invasion of the Iraq and certain views were not, right? And um, we can see that. Another, um, you know, this is from uh, Upton Sinclair said, it is difficult to get a person to understand something when that person's salary depends on not understanding it. So certain views are very hard to understand if they collide with self-interest or one's perceived uh, self-interest. And, um, you know, one example which has been important to me, which is something I've been studying more recently, and I think I, I brought it up in a talk on Wednesday when I gave the series of talks on Buddhist practice and transforming uh, racism. And this is, the, this is the whole history of how race and whiteness developed in the United States. And I, I like to give this history because I think it's not so well known, but it shows the extent to which views are deeply manipulated. And I'll give this history very briefly. Some of you probably know this. This is the history of how uh, the notion of white and black developed in the U.S., uh, particularly in the Virginia and Maryland colonies in the 17th century. Mid-17th century, in those colonies, there is no concept of white and black. Their people are known by their places of origin or their religion. You actually have a relatively small number of slaves and a large number of indentured servants, mostly from England. And they're working, and their ways of working are not entirely different. Indentured servants don't have freedom of movement, typically. There are a lot of rights that they don't have. Uh, slaves can become free. Sometimes slaves are released. They can get property. There's a fair amount of intermarriage. There's not a concept of white and black. And as far as historians know, not a real clear sense of negativity from one group to the other. What develops later in those colonies is that there's a fair amount of connection and solidarity between the indentured servants and the slaves. Like as I mentioned, there was a certain amount of intermarriage. They work together and join in several revolts against the ruling um, planters. The most uh, threatening of those is called Bacon's Rebellion. It occurs in 1676. And up till that point, there's no such thing as whites or blacks. Again, the rulers, the ruling planters, decide they feel very threatened by these rebellions. And there have been several of them. And again, in the rebellions, you have um, people of African, people of European background uh, fighting together in the rebellions. What happens after that, and then there are actually documents that show there were very conscious decisions to uh, pursue a divide and conquer strategy. And so that's when they start talking about whites and blacks. They harden, if that's when you start to have legislation. Um, people who are now called blacks uh, can no longer uh, be free. There, there's a hardening of gender uh, distinctions. No longer is intermarriage permitted. And whites now are, the poor whites are now 
the ones who can become uh, sort of an intermediate group, and they will be part of the slave patrols. And essentially, the rulers divide and conquer. And it's a successful strategy. And all of the whole history that many of us you know, are very conscious of now, the whole history of views about race, about whiteness and blackness comes out of that period. And it gets worse, of course, it gets way, way worse. But the whole, how many of you knew that history some? Yeah. How many, it's powerful. It's powerful when you see that because you can see how the views, in this case, views which have been so powerful about what we call race. And of course, it, it accelerated and got worse. And scientists thought they could be scientific about race. They developed views about race, which are you know, pretty much seen as totally unfounded these days. Right. And all of that develops out of a divide and conquer strategy. And when you look to the last 50 years and U.S. presidents, you can see the same strategy working. How many of you can see that happening more recently with the uh, current occupant of the president? You know, it's very clear, very obvious. Divide and conquer, right? Those people are coming to the suburbs, right? Watch out, suburban housewives. <laughs> What's that about? Or law and order. It's the same strategy promulgating views on the basis of fear and in a sense manipulating people. So that's that's an important thing to look at. So you can see that this is that uh, not only is there a problem with uh, our own individual views and attachment and grasping, but a lot of our more collective views are deeply manipulated. And that's, that's uh, something, how do we see through that, right? Not easy. You, have, you know, for me, learning history has been really, really important for that, for something like race, right? So, so I wanted to, then, you know, that's one of the areas I wanted to take further, that, that looking at how uh, collective views are manipulated. So we can see how the people who, you know, really have those views about whiteness and race are, uh, you know, being, as it were, um, manipulated into a kind of um, a kind of ignorance, we might say, not seeing, you know, use having these views dominate their way of seeing. And of course, so with, with unskillful views, there is a level of ignorance. And then, of course, those views I just mentioned are connected with terrible suffering. Right, and so all of this on the basis of unskillful views. Those are some extreme examples, right? Of course, what's happened with the history of views about race, blackness, whiteness, and so forth, uh, and so forth. So, on the basis of that, we we've looked at um, three foundational practices, and I'll review those and then take it a little bit further. Our first practice is just to see. What are my views? This is, you know, the practice number one. Watch your mind. Notice what are your views. What's your top five set of views? What's your top ten set of views? You know, and maybe to look at them more carefully. Where do these views come from? Which of them are more personal? 
are some of them more social or political views? Do some of them come from a family context? Do some of them come more collectively? You know? Can I see that some of my views are semi-conscious? You know, how do I, you know, maybe, again, we can probably most easily see it in terms of looking at the views connected with being very judgmental of ourselves or others. That, that's one of the ways we investigate those views. We look at when we get really charged about something and we have a very strong view. So we can bring mindfulness to that. We can look. We can study them. What's it feel like when those views are present? What's it like in the body? Where does my mind go? You know, how do those views come out of my experience? And so forth. Then a second practice is one in which we start to do some inquiry interviews. And I guess in a sense we're already doing that with what I just mentioned. So here, the second practice, we can look for when there's a certain charge in a view. When I have a charge in relation to someone else's view or... Um, Again, maybe when I'm really grasping. And I can take the noticing of a charge as a starting point for inquiry. When I have a charge towards someone else's view, I can ask questions like, why do I have such a big charge with this person's view? Maybe a different political view. What's there for me? Is there something I can learn from this person? Is there something in my history that leads to me having a charge with this particular view? And it's really to take the noting of a charge in view or a difference in view as a starting point for looking more deeply into experience. It can be very, very interesting. What can I learn from this person? A third practice is to cultivate listening. When we're with people, who, especially those with different views, can I cultivate listening and empathy with those with different views? What matters for this person? Can I go beyond the maybe the triggering about this different view and try to listen? And sometimes this is hard in the moment, but we can do it sort of after the fact. I can almost do a reflection maybe later in the day you know, what matters for this person with this view? Maybe a relative with a different political view. What's important? What matters? Often we can find that what matters is something that we could agree is important. You know? You know, we hear, for example, from people who may have uh, right-wing political views that uh, they think that too much is going to undeserving minorities. That's a common perspective. And they don't think it's fair. We might agree with the, the importance of fairness, but not agree with what they're talking about. But that can be a way of connection. Yes, you know, and so can we listen beneath the surface for, for what matters with someone? And then um, a fourth practice, which is, which is I'm going to uh, present now, did not, have not presented in the past, is to work when we notice uh, fixed views in ourselves. 
And there are a number of practices which we can go into, and I think I'm going to go into more depth on this uh, next time, and just give a little bit of orientation now. I'm going to talk about three methods of working with fixed views, where we go more deeply into the roots of them. One of them is connected with the uh, work that I've uh, done and sometimes presented on Wednesdays on working with the judgmental mind, judgmental of ourselves or judgmental of others. This is a little more psychological, but where we go into um, fixed views that are there with expressions of the judgmental mind. It could be a view about another person, about ourself, about a political figure. We take, in, 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 the, in all of these methods, we take noticing a fixed view as a starting point for looking more deeply. A second is, uh, comes from the work of Byron Katie, which I'll go into in more depth uh, next week. Some of you know this series of questions that uh, Byron Katie uses, and I found it useful. And I've taught, um, I taught a retreat once where we brought together Byron Katie's work with the work I've developed on the judgmental mind. And it was very illuminating. As you may know, uh, the starting point is finding a very fixed view. And then you ask four questions. Is it true? Do I absolutely know it's true? Essentially, what do I feel like when I have that view or when that view is dominant? When I really believe it. What's my inner experience? And then fourthly, what would I be without fixation on that view. And it's an inquiry process. And then lastly, there's a chance to do what's called turning it around. Like, you know, I might have uh, the view, um, I'm really messed up, you know, a, a negative self-view. I'm really messed up. And you would go through these four steps. Is it true? Yeah, I am really messed up. Is it absolutely true? I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure it's absolutely true, but it's pretty true. I messed up, right? And then we would go to the third question. How do I feel? How do I, what's my experience when I believe this? I feel pretty bad. Actually, I feel pretty messed up when I think I messed up, right? We, I'm going through this quickly. We'll go through more slowly next time, but I would go through it and, and feel that. And then what would I be without that thought or without that belief? Gosh, I might be freer, right? We have that insight, right? Might not have had it before because we're so encapsulated by that view. So I might inquire into that and say, what would I be without that belief or without that thought, without that view? Gosh, I might have a little space for myself. And so it's an inquiry. You don't just do it one time and then it's done. You keep on looking at it whenever there's fixation. And then you turn it around. And you might say, what's a turnaround for I'm pretty messed up? It might be, you know, um, I don't know, two things came to me. It could be, everyone's kind of messed up. Oh, that feels a little bit better. It's not just me. Everyone has some issues. Okay, I can live with that, right? Right? So I'm kind of doing inquiry on the spot where I might say, I'm not really messed up. You know, I may have some issues, but I'm basically okay. Don't give me any more of that. Yeah, 
take that right, or something, you know. And so, um, again, we'll go into more detail here, but the starting point for all of this is identifying a fixed view in our own experience and then inquiring more deeply. And the last one is actually very traditional. Um, this comes from the Buddhist teacher, Nargajana, from about the second century of the Common Era, uh, N-A-G-A-R-J-U-N-A. -A -A. Has anyone studied Nargajana? Very, very interesting. Uh, I actually, um, see, I'll show you a book. This is uh, one of the translations, uh, Nargajana's Middle Way. And another one doesn't have a, I don't have the cover, but it's Verses from the Center by Stephen Batchelor. Those are two very good books on that. And Nargajana is sometimes called the second Buddha. And he had this radical analysis. It starts by identifying a fixed view. And then he did this including with Buddhist views. He took all of the prominent views of his time including there's no self, there's not the teaching of not self is true. He took all the Buddhist views, all the other views, and he basically showed how the structure of thinking is such that every view is connected with its opposite. And therefore, if you actually believe a view closely, you'll come eventually into contradiction because the opposite of your view is implied by your view. I'll have to unpack that for that to make sense. But he's basically saying concepts can't give us reality. They're limited. They can be used practically. And he actually did that by giving a very strict analysis according to the best way of thinking, working with logic of his time, to show how nothing holds up, including Buddhist concepts. Now, it was very interesting. I actually, for some strange reason, I started studying Nargajana when I was about 21, before I actually started to meditate. So that, this has stayed with me. A friend was doing Buddhist studies and showed me it, and I got really interested at a pretty young age. So I'll bring that in uh, next time. And... He said, even Buddhist views are, should not be hung on to. We shouldn't be attached to Buddhist views. You know, he was writing, for example, a lot about the, the, the notion of emptiness. And he said, those who grasp after emptiness are incurable. <laughs> so, in any case. Uh, so that's, um, that's my offering. I'll go into some of what I presented at the end about this, these methods of working when we locate a fixed view in ourselves and doing inquiry that helps us become free. I'll work more with that next week, but I hope to give you a little bit of orientation around that, a little sense. So let's, um, let's just take a pause right now and see from anything that I mentioned. I covered quite a lot, the teachings of the Buddha on working with views, what's problematic about views, that there's some grasping, some attachment, some fixation, and that, that the ultimate criterion 
of a skillful view is its pragmatic usefulness. I also talked some about how collective views are manipulated, and I gave examples of some very powerful and influ influential ones, particularly around concepts of race, whiteness, blackness, and so forth. And then lastly, how there are some actually very powerful methods that can, when we get good at them, we can work with very, very quickly to um, sort of disentangle ourselves from fixed views that, I, that I'll look at more next time. So see which, what there in what I presented might have been helpful, what you might want to explore more, any questions that arise for clarification or any, um, any other um, thing that arises for you. See what's there. So thank you again, and um, let's have, we have some time now. We have a good chunk of time for making a comment, uh, asking a question, a request for clarification, and you can put it either into the chat or you can use the raise hand function, and um, that's probably best if you know how to do that. If you don't, you can raise your hand physically, and we can probably, between Brian and me, we can see them. Does that work, Brian? Okay. I've, I've got a question in the chat. Okay. Could you give an example of a helpful view? Yeah. Well, um, interestingly, you know, those of you who have studied the Buddhist teaching know that um, in the teaching of the, uh, what's called the Noble Eightfold Path, his practical map for, for training, the first step is called, is usually translated as right view. Uh, samaditi. Sama is better translated as mature or realized, sort of a mature way of having a view. And, for example, some of his core teachings would be skillful views. Um, I would say his teaching about views is a skillful view. Okay. Uh, the teaching of the Four Noble Truths. The teaching about uh, being ethical and so forth. So, you know, in the, in the context of the Buddhist teachings, these are all views which help us to awaken, but they're not the equivalent of the most, what? The most awakened mind. You know? Um, that that um, the awakened mind doesn't take even the Buddhist views as some kind of absolute. That's what Nagarjuna is getting at, but they are helpful. So uh, those would be examples. I would say, you know, that which, uh, that which, that which helps us on a practical uh, task can be, help, can be uh, skillful. But I think the Buddha was particularly talking about uh, things that he would include under right view or mature view. I hope that gets added. If not, you can add something else. Okay. Um, simple question. What was the name of the second book Donald showed us? Verses from the Center, 
by Stephen Batchelor, who's, uh, uh, I think, an important writer in Buddhist studies. And mm, that gives a very long introduction to Nagarjuna. It's a very nice book. And he has his own translation of the core text. In the core text from Nagarjuna, what he does is he takes, I think they're, I forget, 25, 26 chapters. Each of them he takes a leading uh, view and takes it in a fixed form and shows how it can't stand up, how it leads to problems or contradictions. And he does that, as I mentioned, even with Buddhist views. You get fixated on a Buddhist view, the Four Noble Truths even, you got a problem. And that's what Nargajana did. It's like, uh, um, that was a very similar approach can be found in Zen. One of the, I think the third Zen ancestor, uh, Sengstan, he, if you look at his very short text, um, he had a line which says, do not search for the truth, only cease to cherish opinions. That's how it's translated. We could say, only cease to cherish views. So I'm, I'm recognizing that there are paradoxes here. We need views to orient ourselves, right? How do you use them as orientation? Find the skillful ones, but not get fixated on them. That's what's being asked. So it's not a, in some sense, it's not an introductory teaching, is it? It's maybe a more intermediate or advanced teaching. Yeah, others... Brian, in the either raised hand or a chat? Yeah, there's a, a couple others. Um, oh, and it looks like there's a couple hands up as well. Okay. Uh, so, uh, does the aphorism fingers pointing to the moon apply to views? Yeah, that's, it's really making the same point. Thank you. That, this comes from Zen tradition, that uh, the views are like fingers pointing to the moon. I don't know. Where's the moon? Up there. Wherever the moon is. Uh, fingers pointing to the moon, and don't confuse your fingers for the moon. It's another way of saying it. You know, Zen, they often could say things very briefly. I've taken like 45 minutes to talk about it. They just say, there's a difference between your finger and the moon, and don't get confused. Okay. So anyway, I took 45 minutes. They take one, one line. And then um, I, I saw uh, those of you th that were not able to find the button but wanted to raise your hand. Can you raise them again? Yeah, and do we have some raised hand? It looks like uh, uh, yeah. Dr. Kelsey Giddings, I see. Hey, thank you. Um, mine's less about a question about the view and more practice. Um, I'm fairly new to the practice, okay. but have been practicing um, coming back to the breath, uh, coming back to the anchor yeah. quite often. And I've um, just started to get a handle on being able to, to identify the thought and then realize, oh, no, come back yeah. you know, here. Um, but one of the things, and I was hoping maybe you could address it shortly because I want to make sure everybody else gets a chance, yeah. is it's less of an attention to the thought and more of like to my body, uh, not an itch or a scratch, but it, all of a sudden I'm, feels like I've become Picasso, um, where it's almost like a body change, like my body's over here, but my mind is here, hmm. or my body's spinning, and it's it's very distracting, and I was wondering, is this something that is just kind of part of the progression, and to 
to not go with, but just continue to come back to the breath or just. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, I think that what the way you said it, it, it's the way I would respond also. Um, When we're first practicing, there are sometimes what we could call perceptual distortions that occur. I had a lot of them occur. You know, I would sometimes, uh, you know, be sitting and feel like I was actually scrunched over like this. But in actuality, I was completely straight, but my perception would be distorted. And this happens as we're kind of deepening concentration, I think as kind of getting a little more unified in our being. So mostly don't, don't worry about it, just keep on coming back. And they're, 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 they're kind of interesting. But, um, <clears throat> you know, I had another time, uh, it lasted for three days, where every time I walked on the ground, the ground moved and shook. Hmm. And then it stopped. Yeah. So things like that happen there. I, I call them more perceptual distortions, which seem to come as part of the process of, of settling. Okay. Thanks. And then uh, Lynn? Yeah, I just, I just was thinking in terms of what I'm kind of hearing is that views are quite intellectual. Mm-hmm. And in that way, you know, they're important, they're put as pointers, but that it's by what you were saying, like looking at it and how it feels in the body where it becomes more experiential. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting to, um, I think views are, in some ways they can, uh, they're, I think they're more than intellectual. They have an intellectual dimension, right. but it actually is helpful. We, we, and when I look at views that are expressed as judgmental thoughts. Uh, we, we actually, it's actually very important to actually see what's it like in the body. Yeah. And, and so I, I, I use language like strong views organize all parts of our experience, mm-hmm. our emotions, as well as our bodies. You know, and they, they um, you know, think of something like, I messed up. Now, when I have that view, I'm probably going to, my body's going to be in a certain state, probably a little bit caved in, and I'll have certain emotions. And so uh, in the mindfulness, it's important when we notice a strong view, I think this is maybe where you're going, to really notice what it's like in the body, notice what it's like in the emotions, notice what the narrative is. It can seem to come from both, I mean, different areas. Um, with mindfulness, it's like, I'm feeling really weird. What is the view that's feeding that? Yeah. I'm aware that I'm really angry with a view. Yeah. And how is that making me feel? That's right. And yeah, you now, could, yeah, we, uh, uh, one practice we sometimes do, if there's a strong view that's there, and it seems like it'll be lasting for a while, you can almost like toggle between, okay, What's it like in the body? Stay there for 30 seconds, a minute, sometimes longer. Okay, what's it like in my emotions? What's going on? How is it changing? Because emotions often don't stay the same. They can change. Oh, I have anger. Oh, looks like the anger is going into sadness. Oh, interesting, right? Uh, And then toggle to what's the narrative? Not so much thinking about it, just naming it. And that can be a very valuable practice when there's a very, very strong view. Mm-hmm. Sort of to, to toggle between them, see how, in fact, that view is organizing experience generally. 
-hmm. not just at the not just at the intellectual level. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you, Lynn. Thank you. And we have uh, a question in the chat, and then also uh, a Zoom hand raised. Yeah. Um, so I'll, okay, so I'll go ahead with the chat question. Okay. Um, depending on one's own experience rather than tradition makes me think of President Trump and how this is what he does to the extreme. Should, shouldn't there be a check and balance on one's experience or maybe a dialogue between experience and tradition? Uh, great points. Yeah, I'm just quoting the Buddha. <laughs> but I think it's a great point. And I think it's, it's also, if you're referring to the president, we are, it's also, the Buddha is also talking about accurate understanding of one's experience. And so it's not just about my view, right? But I think, so I think what the Buddha is saying, look carefully at your experience, presumably with mindfulness, Look carefully, see what you find. But I think the, the point is actually very well taken and is, um, of course, the Buddha wasn't saying I come from a tradition. But for us, uh, I think being part of a tradition, being part of a live tradition, is to uh, take seriously what we get from tradition. You don't take it as absolute truth, maybe but we take it as something that is um, to be honored that, you know, there, you know, our teachers, our ancestors may have had something very valuable. And so, yeah, I think, I think you're actually, I would probably phrase it much like uh, you did, the person who brought this up, that it's a little bit more of a dialogue between experience and tradition, I mean, particularly a tradition which is experientially based. That, that's an important caveat. Right. And we would say, OK, the tradition says, uh, look carefully into your views, you know, and uh, and there are some teachings about views. You know, I gave uh, some of them and that's something that we may want to really honor and learn from. And then when I have a sense that, oh, uh, I actually, oh, I think something good happened when I was really attached to that view. And I can, if I have that sense, I might be in a dialogue that could be very helpful and constructive with the tradition. So I really appreciate that last thought. I think uh, it actually uh, brings out something that I didn't bring out, which is that uh, in actuality, you know, that sense of uh, experientially grounded dialogue, I think, is a better way to, to hold it, you know, with friends, with teachers and so forth. So thank you very much for that point. And I think the Buddha would, I'm sure, say thank you also. <laughs> Hard to, I have to be careful about speaking for the Buddha, but I just did. <laughs> and I think we had uh, Kathleen, was it? Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. So um, I thought this, is, this was fascinating, so thank you. I wanted to ask a question that maybe you can answer quickly. I want to make sure that I'm connecting. I'm, what I'm hearing about this idea of conceptual proliferation yeah. and, you know, something that you would experience when you were practicing. Yeah. So I'm, I'm hearing that that might be a way, a, sort of a chain of investigation. Is that, am I understanding that in order to, 
identify some of your strong views and how they, am I understanding that correctly? Let's see, the uh, papancha, her conceptual proliferation, can be helpful for understanding maybe how we uh, get caught in views. And it's something to notice both in the moment and sometimes after the fact. So, you know, it's to maybe, I, let's say I have a difficult time with a coworker. okay? Use that example. And I find myself sitting there, maybe in meditation, and I'm thinking, you know, why did, why did he do that? You know, why did he do that? He always does it. It's the seventh time he's done that, you know. I don't know what's going on. He's just not dependable. I'm not going to work on any more projects with him. He's a loser, <laughs> right? And uh, and so that, that would be an example of conceptual pro proliferation, but we can see how that's kind of driven maybe by something beneath the surface, maybe some emotions, even something in the body. And we might, uh, so we might, through conceptual proliferation, end up with a very fixed view. He's a loser, you know, or I'm not going to do anything, have anything to do with him. Uh, and but so we can sometimes notice in the moment in our meditation, we can notice that a tendency to conceptually proliferate, sometimes, very often, we come back after three minutes of conceptual proliferation. Sometimes it's pretty harmless. Sometimes it's more like what the example I gave, not so harmless. And so sometimes we can notice it in the moment. Probably more often we notice it when we uh, have been doing it for a while. And it's something to look at. It's some, it's, um, when we can see that, we can see sometimes, especially if we reflect on it after the fact, we can sometimes see how we come up with a view, you know, as in the example I gave. I came to you know, that kind of judgmental view and it, there was a whole uh, stairway to get there, right? So that's something we can sometimes see. It's, it can be helpful to see that. Does that get Thank at you. it some, Kathleen? I, th I think so. I want to think about it a little bit more, but yeah, yeah that was helpful. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, but it's more, like, it's more like a model that describes how the mind sometimes works. Yeah. And sometimes it's not, uh, it's not necessarily... Um, um, it's more to give a guide so we, that we can look at our own experience in practice and see this or that happening. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Okay, we're coming towards the end. Uh, any, are there any more uh, questions in the chat? <coughs> yeah, there was one that uh, just came in. Okay, maybe, um, maybe I'll end with this one. Okay, great. Uh, so is the RAIN practice a way to unpack or... Oh, Oh, uh, they just offered to come on camera. Okay. Uh, go ahead and unmute yourself, Chita. Great, thank you. Thank you for the teachings today. I was wondering, I've been um, practicing. I've been practicing rain. Yeah. Uh, in partners, and also I've been practicing in groups. Um, just started to, but I was wondering, is a rain a good way to uh, a practice to unpack views or beliefs? What do you recommend? Uh, yes, it can be. Um, it, it could, for people who don't know the RAIN approach, it was developed originally by Michelle McDonald. And now I think she uses Michelle McDonald Smith. And I've uh, been taught by a lot of people. Jack Kornfield, in his book, The Wise Heart, 
teaches it. Tara Brock teaches it quite a bit. Uh, done a little bit differently, but it's the, uh, you know, the R stands, some people use different terms these days, but it's often recognize, uh, allow or acknowledge, uh, inquire or investigate, and then, you know, the, the N is talked about differently. Uh, Sometimes Michelle had it as non-identification. I think Tara uses nourish, if I remember. Nurture. Nurture, yeah. And so the key here is the third step. It's the investigation, which needs the other two, the first two to get started. And this is where it's very similar to what I was just talking about, that um, when you notice a fixed view, uh, we can see the investigation part of RAIN could help us to ask the question, okay, what's happening now in my body? Let me, let me see what my experience is in my body. Oh, let me turn to the emotions. Oh, let me identify the narrative. That's a kind of investigation. It's more or less asking what's happening and experientially just sensing into how it is in the body. You know, so we use the word investigation or inquiry in multiple ways. You know, some of the things I was mentioning at the end, Nargajana, Byron Katie, and so forth, uh, those, those are often called investigation methods or inquiry methods. But in RAIN, it's a little bit more with mindfulness. Let me just be present. Okay, the fixed view uh, is strong now. Um, what's it like in my body? What's it like in my mind? You know, and we could investigate also I don't, I don't, this isn't usually, usually in the RAIN method, the ways of investigation are linked with mindfulness. Uh, but we could also investigate by doing things like I mentioned earlier, when I notice I have a really different view with someone, from someone else and I get irritated. I can also ask questions like, uh, you know, is there something I can learn from this person? Is there something in my background which leads me to be irritated? Those are a little... Those are using inquiry more as reflection, whereas in the RAIN method, it's typically uh, inquiry through mindful investigation. So, yeah. and do you have a recommendation when you're doing like the RAIN? And let's say in the inquiry or investigation, it's more of a felt sense or in the body. Yeah. Say, what if you have like more of you can't turn towards those body sensations or numbing, or you just don't feel any body sensations? If there if there's numbing. Um, it's, first, that's, that's important information. Uh, it would be an aspect of investigation to say, with that particular view, when I turn to my body, I'm numb. I mean, you might look, uh, where am I numb in the body? Am I numb in the whole body? Are my hands numb? Or is it more like the core of my body? Often there's, the whole body's not numb. But just to know with this view, there is a lot of numbness. Really, really important to know, right? That would be a kind of investigation. Uh, so, yeah, you could, you could uh, uh, just to know that, and then you could, again, be a little more specific. Uh, when I scan my body, where am I numb? Where am I not numb? Something like that. Yeah, and if you have, like, a lot of trauma with the body, do you recommend oh. towards something else, or...? Yeah, yeah. Do you know the book uh, Trauma Sensitive Mindfulness? Mm -hmm. Okay, so you know that that gives guidance. You know, something that we didn't do ten years ago. We're more savvy now, 
about uh, mindfulness and trauma. And generally when we're going into traumatic territory, maybe a view is connected with a certain amount of trauma. Thank you for bringing this up, actually, because it, it's an important addition to what I was saying today, that we want to be careful when, when some kind of trauma may be linked with a particular view, which could be linked, for example, with some of the views I gave that may come from childhood. I messed up, right? That may be linked with uh, trauma. And then it's not so easy just to, okay, what am I experiencing in the body? That may be actually re-traumatizing, may not be skillful, right? So one thing that uh, I often do or would do uh, before experiencing something that has a lot of charge is to ask a few questions. Is there trauma connected with this? And if there is, we want to be careful and have, you know, uh, if, if we go into that territory and it feels like we're getting anything close to uh, uh, activation beyond what we can control, uh, then we won't, don't want to go there. You know, there, or there is, um, I don't know if uh, David Trelevin in that book uh, uses the concept, but uh, I've, I've studied trauma fair amount. And this, there's a little, can you see this model? See those lines? And yeah. it's basically saying the horizontal line is the line above that the activation is out of control, the traumatic activation out of control. Below it, we can have some degree of mindfulness. We have to get very savvy about the level of activation and do things to deactivate it before it gets too high. So we have to have a lot of internal knowledge about our levels of activation. And we have to be able to know that we don't want to go beyond that line because that's actually going to be harmful. It'll be re-traumatizing. And so what one would do with a professional with uh, traumatic material, you'd learn to go just for a little while into activation and then deactivate it. Like going down, you deactivate it you know, maybe right there. And we would do that many times. And that's actually how trauma in the long run gets healed, right? You, maybe you've experienced something like that. Right? Yeah, no, I'm just learning more and more about it. And um, so I was, just, I was very curious. And yeah, I haven't had experiences, but I'm, I don't, um, I, I've built up a lot of inner resources. So I've really nourished, I, I really focus on a lot of that. Yeah. And then, um, before I try to go into anything that's really very painful. So I really work on the, the self-compassion. So really being resourced. That's, that's really crucial. The, the, again, uh, to add to that, maybe have a very clear knowledge of where that boundary is beyond which it's too much. Yes. And, and not let yourself get very close to that, that boundary. That's a really crucial addition. And, uh, but it sounds like you have, uh, Good resources about resources. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Good. Thank you so much. Okay. Uh, thank you for, thank you, Sheeta, uh, for, for that. Really helpful. I, I really appreciate the comments. They've really added points that are both important and ones that I didn't have in my original presentation. So I really appreciate the uh, kind of the community uh, almost a more uh, collaborative model, even if I'm doing most of the talking. I appreciate that. 
So let's close now. And thank you for your indulgence. We've gone over time some. First to come back to yourself and ask the question, how would I like to practice with views in the next week? You might want to work with one of the practices, just generally being more mindful of views, which includes investigation like we've just mentioned. Secondly, working with a charge around views. Thirdly, listening and having empathy with those with different views. Those I'm calling the three foundational practices. Would you like to work with those in the next week? And what will help you to remember to practice? Take a minute or so to reflect. And how many of you would like to work with views in the next week? Okay, great. Okay, we'll come back. And so we'll just close by saying that we practice for our own benefit, but also for the benefit of others, ultimately for the benefit of all. May our time today have benefits, and may those benefits be offered to all beings, which includes us. So again, thanks everyone. And if you want to unmute, we can say we can say goodbye. Thank you, Donald. Okay. Thank you. Bye. 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 Bye.